Welcome to the Career After COVID podcast, where you'll get actionable ideas to survive the pandemic and economic downturn and take your career to the next level when it's over. Here's our co-hosts, Fleur Hull and Kim Korolevich. Hi, Kim. Hey, Fleur, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. Hi, Sarah. We've got a special guest on our program today. We've got Sarah Allchurch, who's the principal of Allchurch Communications, which she founded in Perth in 2006 as a boutique investor relations and crisis communications company. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me, ladies. Thank you. Uh, with Sarah today, we'll be discussing how the corporate landscape has changed during COVID and hear about some of her personal journey as a leader in these times of crisis, as well as hopefully getting some expert insights on the ways individuals can manage change and stress. So we'll get underway to hear a little bit about Sarah's background. How did your journey start? What was your first education and, and training experience along the way to where you are now? So I just um, wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. So I went into a broad degree. I did an arts degree um, where I ended up specialising doing a double major in politics and English. And during that time, I started working on the university newspaper and I really, really liked it. And so then I decided I wanted to become a journalist. Um, so I also got some work experience on a really small newspaper way out in the hills uh, during my uni holidays where there was a really lovely managing editor who took me under his wing and I wondered if I needed to stop the degree I was doing and go into a specialised journalism mm. degree. But he said to me, no, don't worry if you can write and think critically and sniff out a story. It doesn't really matter what degree you do and we can teach you a lot of that anyway as long as you know how to write. So that was kind of a relief because I didn't have to switch universities and switch courses. I bet. So, yeah, that was kind of the, the education side. Mm. And then straight after uni, I, I was offered a job with the, with the same company that I had done the work experience with. And I did sort of a, an unofficial cadetship, I suppose, with them. And I worked on, across all their titles in, you know, just as a cub journalist really, just reporting on business and particularly in the resources sector. But what was really good about that was that because it was a smallish business, um, I was able to see not just what my role was, but I was introduced to the machinations behind the business, uh, how they made their profits, the way advertising fed into it, how events and conferences brought new subscriptions, and I kind of really got to see how the business worked as well as honing my skills as a reporter. So that was super valuable. And then having that mentor all the way through was really great. Um, and so after that, I just did a number of different journalism roles. So I worked in television at Channel 9 and Channel 10 and doing news. Um, I also did a stint with Bloomberg News, the big international newswire service. So that was a really big change because they just have a very specific way of working and they expect extreme speed with their reporting because Newswire is all about speed. So it was a really big bump to sort of go from working in Australia, working in Perth, reporting 
on Australian only to I was then covering Southeast Asia uh, and expected to kind of file over the phone. You didn't even really write. You just had to verbally um, file your stories. And so that was a really big kind of pressure, but it was a really good uh, schooling and just how to get to the bottom of the story and get it out as quickly as you can, which is a, which is a skill that you can use in lots of different areas. Definitely, yeah. I um, The thing I picked up on there is, is the mentorship. I don't know if you picked up on that, Kim, but it's, it's something we've talked about lots, isn't it, how how yeah. much of a difference it can make for someone further along in their journey to, to pay it forward. So, exactly. Yeah, sorry, Kim. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I was wondering the mentorship but and also that sort of that kind of speed of just jumping in and mm. having to, you know, um, go with the new Bloomberg way of doing things. And I think filing stories verbally rather than writing it is a, a massive change um, yeah. that I guess having a good mentor is going to help you through, right, like a whole new organisational way of doing things. And that's always difficult, I think, in changing careers. Yeah. So I'd, I'd had this lovely mentor and then I left that job and I, I took this job with Bloomberg. And it's funny that you said the Bloomberg way of doing it because when I first started this giant book very heavy book arrived in the mail and it was called the Bloomberg way and oh. it was for all employees to read this is the way we write this is our style mm. and absolutely specific about every last thing so that there is complete and utter consistency across all their reporters across the world so that all of their Bloomberg subscribers will it wouldn't matter who wrote it whether I wrote it here or someone wrote it in Mumbai or wherever there's this unbelievable consistency and they are absolutely sticklers about it so that's not really my way I, I don't really dig that kind of real rigidity but it was still really yeah. good for me to to be put through that and to learn that um discipline mm-hmm. but just circling back to the mentorship that that boss that I had not only taught myself and others to you know be the best reporters we could be the best editors we could be he showed us sides of the business where they you know sort of side hustles where they got extra advertising and 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 we were allowed to come up with ideas you know and like implement those ideas and if they worked they would be included going forward and if they didn't oh well you know so it was really great it was almost like um sheltered workshop for Doing it, you know, it was without much risk for us because mm. he would allow us to to implement some of these new ideas, and some of them really flew, you know. And and he took on, and and they're still going, and others not quite. But you know, just to be given that um, latitude well, yeah. was really, really quite unique, and almost like a, it's really an entrepreneurship sort of yeah. training ground, isn't yeah. it? To, to be thinking of of yeah ways to to expand the the revenue base. That's right. Yeah, so that was really great. And I didn't realise at the time that it was really out there and, and different and non-standard. I just kind of thought this was how it was in all businesses. But I realised now, retrospectively, that that was absolutely um, beyond valuable for, for me. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that uh, Kim and I talk about as well is, um, you know, how few people out in the world actually understand business, even in its most 
basic sense because they go into a job maybe either, you know, a, a government job obviously, it's going to be harder for them to sense yeah. kind of things like cash flow and all those sorts of things. But even into big corporates, you know, I've, I've met people in my career who have just stuck with this, you know, amazing job and worked their mm-hmm. way up and they have a sense that obviously the business has to make money for them to get paid but the revenue just keeps coming in yeah. and there's not really that uh, sense at the margins that if they don't do their job properly, mm. actually the business ceases to exist and yeah. they're out of a job. Yeah. So I, I have really <clears throat> found that the same thing and people at quite senior levels who don't seem to grasp the basics of the business model mm. in which they work mm. and it's it's actually a bit frightening, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, as you say, quite senior people mm. who just um, just see the, the the cash flowing in and, and don't realise that in They're when you start a, a business bubble of yeah. their own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we've reflected on that along the way, haven't we, Kim? Yeah. The other thing I noticed too is, or otherwise they, you know, they may go to some kind of leadership training and they have you know, like their four dot point catchphrases and that becomes their new kind of rhetoric and religion. And it's like, so they're like guiding points. Like you don't have to, you know, there's other things as well. It's like that innovative thinking, innovative leadership kind of you feel is lacking, right? It's like, here's your four points, guys. Now move forward. It's like bigger. You can go bigger than that too. You know, you can, yeah, there's a whole other mindset, I think, to good leadership. So yeah, I've come across that quite a bit. <laughs> always fun, always fun. One, one of my questions for Sarah, um, and you've sort of really answered it, was around, you know, the, the drive to start your own entity. Mm. Um, in a way, regardless of, I guess, what was sort of you were thinking in terms of maybe wanting to just run your own show, mm. you must have felt somewhat co- confident given that mentorship in other aspects of the business in a way that a lot of people who, say, get fed up with corporate life mm. and want to do, run their own show are, are naive around. Did you, did you maybe you didn't recognise it at the time, but looking back? Well, I think there was just one more job in the rung after the ones I've described, which was um, at, at about this time of my career, the dot-com thing had blown right up. It was huge. Everyone was doing something online. Everyone was making so much money. And I was, um, I went and worked for a dot-com company that was an investor relations and news kind of service, but there was sort of a blurred line between the, re- the reportage and the sales aspect. And I was recruited as a reporter, but very quickly I got sort of shoved over into sales. So I found myself going out with the then managing director to visit ASX listed companies to tell them about the service and to sell them the service. And it was referred to as the hat and cane routine. And we'd go in there and we'd talk about, <laughs> we'd talk about, you know, you can just picture <laughs> the hat and the cane. And like we'd, and I sort of watched these people doing it. And then I, I sort of copied it a bit. And then I got my own rhythm. And I found that I was really good at this, at this job, mm. even though I was, wasn't really doing any reporting anymore. But I was kind of going out, talking to boards and managing directors, talking about, the news that we were doing and the investor relations and um, communicating with stakeholders and that's sort of what it was all about. Email, you know, it's so old school now, God, it's sort of embarrassing to look back at it. But um, 
so that was really interesting. So that really gave me skill set in talking to clients and, and I'd already done lots of interviews and, and talked to senior people that, you know, that was my job. But to go out and be wanting something from them other than an interview, to, to ask them to cough up some dosh mm. for something you're selling is a whole different uh, dynamic. And so um, I was just, you know, going along in that particular job when we were all called into the office one Friday afternoon and unceremoniously retrenched all at once. You know, just like many of those dot-com companies, they, they, it just completely uh, ran out of money, un, unbeknownst to us. It was in dire financial trouble. And so we were all um, just told to go home and, and pack your stuff into a box. A, a month before that, I'd bought my first house and I was so thrilled. I'd gone to the bank. I'd shown them this great salary I was earning. And, you know, it was just a little unit, but it was such a big deal. And I just remember thinking at the time, oh, my God, I have just signed on the dotted line for this mortgage and just moved in. And I got my stuff into a box and I started walking home because my place was within walking distance of the office and it just started to rain and rain and I was walking along and then the box got so soggy that all of my stuff fell out oh. <laughs> it just, and I just sat down on the curb in the rain and just cried because I was so overwhelmed with anxiety about how was I going to pay this mortgage, where was I going to get another job, what have I done, you know, and so nothing like a bit of stress and pressure to... Mm. Uh, provide a little bit of impetus to get um, your own business going. So that's kind of where that, that's how that happened. Wow. It's like a movie, Mike. I actually was, pictured that. You told that really well. It was that's so like, awful. I know, I know, I know. I, I didn't know. even have furniture. I sat on a crate when I got home and just cracked open a beer and just thought, oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. Yeah. It was really quite grim at the time, but it's amusing to look back on. That. Well, yeah, you can, yeah, you can. It's it's that old thing, isn't it? When you're stressed out about something, like how will you really be worried about this in five years' time? Yeah. And of course, you can yeah, look back on it back on it differently. And yeah, I I got made uh, redundant from one of my jobs. Yeah. I think I just just signed the mortgage on a yeah. place. Yeah. Hadn't yeah. settled, but right. had signed. Yeah. You know. So um, yeah. It's part of the journey of life. But, it is. You know, um, Sarah and I went to school together and you, you look back and, you know, we, we would say we got educated quite well, but these are the things that no one really tells you that are, that okay. are going to be part of the journey. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. How, how long did you, Sorry. I was going to say, how long did you sit on the crate for? But that's not what I mean. I mean, <laughs> metaphorically <laughs> or. <laughs> what was that? I still get, get on that crate every now and then. <laughs> I know just to like bring you back to earth a bit you know a bit of humbling um so how long were you in that sort of transit transition period you know that period which I think is kind of timely for where we're at at the moment yeah, too, yeah. where you're kind of in a holding pattern going damn it I've got to make this happen and you know sometimes it can happen quite quickly and sometimes you just know that it could be six months away so what was that like for you Sarah how what was that timing like so it was actually almost immediate um, oh. because I was so, you know, I'd never, I'd never had any kind of, you know, I bought a car 
But yeah. I've never had anything like the experience of, you know, a big financial buy like a house, you know, and I was and, and I knew that um, I'd had some money for the down payment but that it was mainly my highish salary that had allowed mm. me to purchase it and I thought I've got to go back and see Arthur at the bank and I just wasn't looking forward to it. So the first thing I did was go back and see him and say, I've just lost my job. And I thought he'd almost say to me, well, you can't have your house then because <laughs> it just felt like that. But he said, oh, that's okay, you know, we'll just um, slow down your repayments and he did whatever he did. Um, but I went home and I thought, what can I do? I looked through, you know, Seek and all those sorts of things for what might be around. There didn't seem to be. There was just massive retrenchments happening in my sort of area at the time. Um, so I just very distinctly remember I had, you know, I set my computer up in the spare room. I was still in my PJs and I just went through and started making calls to my network. So people I'd interviewed because I'd always been within the business sector so it wasn't like I didn't have a network of people and I'd been out trying to sell this service and product to these people that had suddenly disappeared and I thought well what can I do that I was doing before and just offer it to them for a bit less Mm. and so that's what I did I just started calling up the people I felt like I got on with the best (laughs) yeah very amateurishly tried to sell my services and I just did one little job and another little job and before too long I was sitting all day in my pyjamas. I didn't even have time to have a shower because it was so busy. Wow. So it, wow. it was just, you know, and I, I look back, I was massively underpricing myself because I didn't yeah. have a sense of how much my skill set was worth and it was an hourly rate, you know. Yeah. So but just over time grew in confidence and then I couldn't manage it on my own. So I started to look for a commercial premises for my business and then that the next step was to buy my office around the corner and, and sort of fix that up. And then before too long I had one staff and then two staff and then three staff and at, at its peak I had five people working for me. Yeah. That was... That was um, it was really fun, and um, but you know, it's that then that's a whole other thing of just managing people and personalities, and that was something I hadn't had any practice with. And yeah. um, you know, there's the doing of the work, and then there's all the other stuff, the politics, the personalities, the drama. Mm. <laughs> and that was a whole new learning curve as well. I think we've all got a story of our first people management role mm. and how. What was yours? Um, I started out in um, being the marketing department at a university, a small university, and um, grew into a team. I think I had nine people reporting to me as, mm. as manager of, of marketing and admissions. Yeah. And, yeah, no one prepares you for it. And even if I'd been given, you know, education in it it's it's really the school of hard knocks isn't it you just have to learn as you go and I think some people probably have an innate ability to kind of manage it all and and keep themselves on the right track but I uh, I had moments there where I mean my my the most difficult thing that I dealt with was a, a woman coming to me uh, three months after she'd started to tell me she was four months pregnant. And 
the way the maternity leave policy had been written, it was it was just so full of loopholes that it was like we were going to have to pay this woman six months maternity pay, even though she just started and was actually pregnant. Which like there was yeah. no qualifying, you know. So yeah. I just yeah, I, I had uh, yeah, it was it was a baptism of fire, and you get yeah. through it, and um, yeah, you learn your lessons and and move forward and. But it is, I think it's the hardest part of, of running a business or running a, a, a unit within a business. Mm. It's, it's always the, the, the people that you've got to manage and, and your interactions with them, their interactions with each other, their interactions with their life outside of work. And, uh, yeah, Kim, you, I'm sure you've got some stories along the way. Look, all of that and then just the whole, all the paperwork involved in employing someone and, you know, the process within a different organisation, you know, you need someone and you want to bring someone on, but you've got to understand the rigmarole before you go through the rigmarole. And, you know, you spend so much time on that actual management of the team, um, not even including, you know, the stuff you've just been, you know, talking about, you know, and, you know, and, and just, you know, saying to people, get off that ladder don't balance on that ladder with one foot. You know, like you just constantly, your brain has gone to a whole other area. You kind of think you're moving up the ranks and you're going to be doing more intense kind of strategic work, but it actually does take you in a different direction, I think. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how well I do with managing. I'm, I tend to be quite well, I mean, I used to be quite, well, you know, let's just do this and we're all on the same page. But, you know, I think now I'm a little bit more, um, you know, I, I just need to see how people perform before I let them have too much free reign. <laughs> very wise, life. Kim, very wise. Well, yes. Nothing worse than hiring someone who you think is, you know, is really good on paper and then you find to your horror that they are abysmal at their job. Yeah. and. Yeah or worse, and completely incompetent. And that, that happened to me. And, and it was someone who was old, significantly older than me, and I'd hired this woman and I thought she's going to be so great and she can keep an eye on the other people while I'm out doing this and that. And it just turned out she, I don't know, she must have fudged her qualifications because she just had no idea. And then I had to very kind of quietly say to her, before her three months were even up, you know, this isn't working and she just burst into tears and completely became an emotional wreck in the office and and I wasn't prepared for that either. I just, mm. I thought, oh, my, what am I going to do with this woman? Mm. It's yeah. very, on a personal level, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff is um, very confronting. Mm. It is. In, a, I, in a workplace. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and I think... Um, it's another thing I think about people not really understanding the challenges of, of being in your own business, realising, and there's always stories of employers doing the wrong thing by employees and we should always, you know, have the rights of employees maintained. But growing up with parents in small business, the number of stories of employee, employees doing, and even actually working in universities, you know, employees who would go around university to university and set up a situation where they were hard done by mm. and then get these payouts 
for unfair dismissal and you know all that sort of stuff. My parents gaming the system. Yeah, people had they had people stealing off them, but they had to give them a payout just because Mm. it was easier. You know. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're probably if if you think about your challenges earlier on. Early on, are they things that you really? So for me, I think the biggest challenge or you know disappointment was that I did have somebody who worked for me for for a very long time and who was sort of my 2IC if you like and then when I took time off to have my son I never really stopped work I just sort of wound it back but I continued to work in drips and drabs and from home all the way through really but obviously I was not in the office nearly as much and sort of what became apparent afterwards was that during the time that I wasn't there, she was um, speaking to clients, telling them that I was selling the business, that I was not, not going to be coming back, uh, and she set up an ABN and started oh. invoicing them oh. under a business name of her own. And it took me, it took a client to ring me and say, hey, this has happened and I've just been told this, this and this. Is that true? And I went, <gasps> and then I then I realised and the penny dropped and I had to go back through, you know, that I had to race in there and, and change all the passwords and go through the IT system and the invoicing and try to uncover what had been done, what had been going on for several months. And it was just apart from the... You, you, you know, like it's so, so deeply unprofessional. But for me, it was personally very upsetting because it's, it's a betrayal when you've taken someone who had no experience and given them seven years. <gasps> it's, it's seven really, years. That's wow. right. Really confronting. And so, oh. a couple of clients. So, out of all, out of everyone that you know, one client went. Um, it was actually a situation where we were subcontracted to them and. But you know, it just you know, yeah, just you just it beggars belief why people would think that they could get away with doing that because it really doesn't matter what city or field you work in. I think people find things out, and reputation is something that is um, pretty precious. Very hard to recover mm. once you've sullied it. Mm. So that it's would so- be definitely my biggest disappointment. Shocker. Yeah, that's a shocker. And um, on the flip side, well, any quick wins? You know, anything you look back on that either through intention or inadvertently really helped things along in those early days? Um, I, th- I think definitely um, exploiting my existing network that I'd had as a reporter. I, you know, I immediately had relationships in place. They didn't have to be built. From scratch, they knew that I could perform. They knew that I could write. Um, so that was just a naturally um, easy step. There's a lot of people who make who, who move back and forth between comms and journalism and vice versa. So that was yeah, that was mm. probably um, a, a huge advantage. Yeah, what an amazing story to to build that up. Yeah, and and get it to where it was and, and overcome those challenges along the way but you know seven years in yeah that was that betrayal yeah that was that was difficult and I think at that point I I I just changed the way I view things and I thought right well now I've got a family and other things have changed in my life and so I wanted to kind of focus more on consulting just me 
and being able to charge more for that and, mm. you know, with my experience and um, sort of just pivoting slightly, not so much about offering a full service and offering a more specialised, unique service that meant that I wasn't going to be in that position again really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Clever, yeah. really. The, yeah. Well, it was just um, sort of an, a logical step mm. really. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So moving on to, I guess, where we find ourselves this year, mm-hmm. observations of um, Kim, did you want to pick up on the, yeah. the COVID landscape? Yeah, 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 observations of changes um, in the corporate landscape pre-pandemic and now. Can I, I just want to jump back, can I just quickly get you maybe just to explain a little bit more about crisis comms? just in case some of our listeners aren't sort of aware of what that may involve and how that does relate to where we are at the moment in COVID with business, crisis comms. So crisis crisis communications is simply a niche area within sort of broadly public relations, but it focuses specifically on when individuals or corporations are having some sort of a crisis. So it can be anything from... We own a gas pipeline and it's just blown up all the way through to an individual who's having uh, some sort of personal issue and they're a member of a board or there's there's some sort of reputational risk. Um, you know, you think of the crisis and there's a, a comm solution for it or there should be. Wow. You know, um, it, it can be in any field, in any sector. It can be, um, you know... There's uh, food that's been poisoned that's gone out to the retail market or, you know, just anything along those lines. So it's about about outlining the crisis, working out who it affects or the stakeholders and then kind of formulating a strategy to deal with it, to try and minimise the harm to all of the stakeholders and, of course, the client itself. So that's... Is that, mm. is that a reasonable mm. explanation? Yeah, yeah. That's I a guess. great explanation. Yeah, yeah. great explanation. Yeah. One of my questions on, and I have, you know, in, on the periphery of my own sort of study and, and work along the way kind of intersected with this this area, but um, my recollection of, of advice in the space is to try and be as transparent and upfront as possible. Does that still apply in terms of not wanting to get yourself tied in knots, trying to sort of hide the, the reality yeah. of what's gone on and, and to, to take the blame where it's, where it's necessary? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a, you know, I think any practitioner would do it slightly differently. And people have reputations for certain areas and, you know, someone just does sports people and things like that, which, of course, is not my area. But, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think the best thing to do is to have a plan ahead of time so that you're proactive rather than reactive. And, you know, it's nice when you've got a client where you've actually planned a little bit for if this happens or if this happens this is what we'll do, this is who would speak, this is kind of the messaging we would look at, this is how we might avoid it altogether, rather than something happens and everyone scrambles around, the phone's ringing, press is wanting comment, you know, or they're at some location with a TV film crew and it's all getting a bit ugly. Um, That's what you want to avoid. So I guess that's the gold standard Mm. is is that preparatory approach. Mm. rather than a reactive kind of thing. Mm. Right. 
And then, and, also, sorry, Kim. No, 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 you keep going. You keep going. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, it can apply to situations like that or um, some of the work we do is more to do with transactions. So in terms of ASX listed clients, if they're trying to, you know, raise a whole lot of money to do something new or um, mobilise a whole lot of shareholders to vote a certain way on a particular issue, uh, that can be also kind of encompassed in crisis comms. So you kind of solicit the shareholders by letting them know the information, um, providing them, answering any questions. Uh, we might set up a hotline where, you know, they can ring up and ask questions and get things answered that they're wondering about um, to kind of, yeah, reach an outcome or an objective. So it doesn't always have to be a crisis crisis. It can be it's sort of, yeah, it's quite a broad field. And with... With that, and like I think, you know, preparation is everything. With COVID coming, I know we wanted to sort of talk about maybe those few weeks after COVID hit. I mean, what was the level of crisis like? You know, was there preparation for something like COVID hitting in terms of business? What, you know, how did that impact those sort of clients that you have? Well, I think what, I mean, you know, the short answer is no, they didn't. I, I don't think really many of us saw it coming. We all saw what was happening in China and I thought it's going to it's gonna fan out, it just will have to. But I think a lot of people just felt that it was just not going to reach us here somehow and there was a real level of complacence, complacency. And um, so in terms of the reaction from you know, certainly the sector within which I work was just everybody just battened down the hatches and pulled up stumps. So big projects that were going to be going ahead were shelved. Um, you know, things that anything that could be put on ice was put on ice. Um, spending was um, lowered. You know, people were let go. Certainly consultants um, were either let go or drastically reduced. A lot of people, as we know, lost work. I lost, you know, some of the big project work that was in the pipeline. I mean, it may still, it may still happen, but certainly for the time being it hasn't um, resurrected itself. But um, another sort of work came in which was a different kind of work to anything I'd done before, which I think reflected you know the covid the covid mentality and what what was happening to people on a personal level at work with all this change and flux and stress i think i which i just saw a lot of new clients coming in where directors at a sort of at a board level um there was a lot of drama and a lot of issues management was required um yeah. there was some pretty poor behavior at a board level you know directors taking advantage of the confusion and trying to sort of increase their stake in a business without consulting, the, you know, the rest of the board. Um, another client had a sort of a health health issue and, and didn't come to work and didn't inform anybody and started to make phone calls to existing clients and, and you know, was really quite unruly and, there's a lot, yeah. a lot of risk associated with that because you can't have the head of a company behaving like that and not, and for the clients not to start to get worried. 
So yeah. a lot of stuff around strategy to deal with that sort of corporate behaviour, which I hadn't seen really before. Yeah. It was quite unique to COVID. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we were we talk a lot, we've talked in the past about all these sort of different types of coping strategies and ways to sort of get through this. So is there any sort of um coping strategies that you would utilize or that you would share to kind of get some of this sort of executive suite back on track or to um pull them back and you know with their behaviors? So <laughs> I think there wasn't one size fits all. In, uh, it was more that you had to kind of intuit what was happening for each individual situation and then devise something specific to that. Um, and, and most of it was just about keeping people calm, keeping the stakeholders calm, so making sure that you kept in touch. Nothing worse than the silence when people start to worry and they sense something's wrong and the panic that's in. And then it's curtains. So it was about drafting, uh, you know, emails that would go out to this this level of staff, and then a different email that would go out to the senior staff, and then um, an agenda for the board to discuss, and then how are we going to deal with the individual in question, and who is going to be the person to do that, and what will they say, and and actually, you know, in one instance, I actually prepared a sort of a almost like a script for a phone call because yeah. the person in question was so wobbly mm. um, and it felt like that if the conversation didn't go well, then the whole outcome could be affected. And so we sat down and I said, this is what I think you should say and you need to remember that you can't, you know, be accusatory and we're going to try and just calm this person down. So it was almost more like psychology, you know. Yeah, and, no. um, <laughs> Which... Yeah. Really is not my bag. <laughs> Kim's, Kim's bag. So Kim's got a psych degree and is oh, doing a grad cert in yeah, forensic, right. yeah, so, forensic yeah. psychology. Oh, I didn't even realise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I mean. Like it was it was sort of just so, you know, this was kind of, you know, you asked me about lessons mm. learned is that, you know, you've got a whole, you've got your professional toolkit and your qualifications and your experience and you're like, this is my work self and this is what I do and these are what I, this is what I can show you and demonstrate. <laughs> but then we all have other skills that are our social, personal selves and that's, I mentioned intuition and even mm. sense of humour and, um, or, you know, like a, if you're a brave person, you're, you're more likely to be able to face a really icky, difficult situation um in, at a work level you know people get so embarrassed and they're mortified and they don't know how to behave if someone's gone off the rails um and so if you can pull on those other skills then bring them into your work life it just adds more to what you can you know the outcome you can achieve for for them yeah great point yeah, isn't it? yeah we, we've sort of touched on that too kim haven't we how the the personal toolkit and the, and the resilience that you build up from even that um, the series of challenges that we all sort of go through in our even just our non-work lives, you know, things whether it's death of a relative or relationship issues or whatever, you mm. you you build your courage and your strength and resilience from that. And mm. uh, I guess, yeah, in your case, was able to whatever it is that's that's built you to be the person that you are, bring that that toolkit in. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that's kind of a step it was for me it was a bit of a mental step to sort of 
to, to recognise that and then to sort of give it value and then say this is also really useful and valuable and I, I can really um, bolster my professional life using these additional skills. Whereas I think before that I kept it sort of quite separate, you know. I yeah, just thought well, of it an inclination to, yes. Yeah, yeah really separate the two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was really interesting, I thought. Yeah, I think definitely one of the things you said there about everything's individual and that's one of the things about dealing with situations and behaviours, isn't that the individual differences of us, of us all, whether mm-hmm. it's the pe- with the problem or that skill set or those experiences that we bring as individuals to a situation. So everyone has something of value, I always think, to bring to the table, you know, if you're open to having that conversation. Um, and just on that, because we, we, we were just also wondering about with the resilience of firms, if there was anything remarkably different between like the larger firms versus the smaller firms that you may have been dealing with in terms of COVID? Um, I mean, I think I think both the bigger and smaller companies have taken a hit and I think there's been, you know, reductions in staff, certainly that I've, I've noticed at, at both levels. So, but it's the smaller companies that have really um, struggled. And I know I've talked to a lot of people who've who've um, signed up for and are receiving JobKeeper, and that has really got them is getting them through mm. um, because you know they just simply weren't able to work. Right. They weren't allowed. The, you know, the restrictions prevented them from being able to earn anything. So that has just kept them going. Um, and, and allowed them to retain their staff, even though yeah. everyone's taken a huge pay cut. They've, they've not had to let them go. So I think that's, you know, I've really seen up, up close how how um, important that's been, that particular um, government assistance. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you think that... Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about this too in the fact that, you know, during COVID and you may have lost your job or whatever else has happened, um, we talk a lot about starting your own business. So do you feel like there's a lot of people that may have been laid off or maybe they're on JobKeeper and they're starting to think about, you know, having that entrepreneurial mindset kind of click in and thinking about starting their own businesses as well? I think there are. I mean... Yeah. Whether or not that will translate to actual doing it, I think when you've got that time on your hands and if you're that way inclined, if you're a little bit of an entrepreneur at heart, you do start to think, oh, what about this idea? What about that? I, so I have. I mean, I'm doing some work, but I'm also thinking, what about that? And, oh, mm. and, and also thinking about aspects of yourself that you hadn't really had time to think of, you know, if you've got interests and hobbies that you hadn't had time to indulge. Um you know, whatever that is, whether that's music or writing or sport or, you know, gardening or bird watching, whatever, it's I think it's been a time where we've all sat and contemplated and wondered, you know, is this everything? Is this is this all there is? And what do I, what else do I want? And <laughs> that is such a common sorts of philosophical kind of existential yeah. crisis sort of isn't it? Yeah. Everyone seems to have this existential malaise of some type where they're Mm. like, I've decided that 
I'm not going back to that. And, you know, like, it, and it changes by the week how people mm-hmm. feel and feel about things too. So, um, yeah, that's probably one of our, our favourite topics to talk about <laughs> too is how, how we week to week. It's like, who am I this week, Flo? Who is I? <laughs> and like, you know, it, it just it's like the dynamic sort of shift every week for us. It's quite funny. You could be chameleons after COVID. <laughs> well, yes. I just, I, mean, well, I have to dial it back, I think, you know, and, and I mean, it's one of the things that we, we're really simpatico about, isn't it, Kim, that we are always kind of generating ideas to to um, direct our interests in a yeah. whole range of areas, you know, mm-hmm. business-wise and, yeah, hobbies, I guess, as well. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, that, at some point you have to focus it back in because there's only so many hours in the day. Oh, also um, the reality of, the, you know, the financial reality oh, yeah. for most people yeah. where you've got to just get money yeah. and pay bills and, yeah. you know, yeah. people have been really squeezed and it's like I'd really like to go off and do this but mm, mm-hmm. I guess I'll do that yeah, well, we did an episode on just raising, just like earning extra income during the pandemic and, and you know, found this stat that Gumtree reckons the average household's got $5,500 worth of stuff they could get rid of, you know. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's well, absolutely got to be part of it. Yeah. Like, even my mum who for ages didn't do it and then now she's the Gumtree queen. <laughs> she's always on there. <laughs> Exactly. We're going to have to wrap it up soon, but I know we've got a couple of wrap-up questions, Kim. Sure, sure. Well, listen, it's been absolutely fascinating, and I'm—I have to say, I had limited understanding of crisis communications and 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 what you do generally. And look, I'm sure a few of our other listeners would have been really interested and intrigued by what you just spoke about. So, what kind of advice or direction or? info could you share with someone aspiring to possibly work or start a business in the area you're currently in, Sarah? Well, I would imagine that people that are aspiring would mainly be younger, you know, people with with this, you know, maybe working in PR. It's it's not easy at the moment because so many people have been laid off and because budgets have been slashed. But what I would say to, to certainly people coming up through the ranks is to really leverage your skills around what is native to you, which is the digital side of things. So the the digital marketing, the social media and the way every five minutes you blink and there's a new app that everyone's using that links into this, to this, to this, to this. We're all trying to keep up. I certainly am, but I do feel quietly that I may be just falling behind. I'm trying <laughs> trying not to. But the younger people, you know, the 20-somethings have just an ability to intuitively understand how it all fits together, what works, how the messaging should go here, here, here and here, and that is really, really valuable to anyone, to an individual, to small to mid-sized companies and to giant corporations, and it is very much a niche and I reckon if you have a natural skill, you know, to be able to communicate on those platforms, then I would really look at building that right up and um, using that to sort of sell yourself because I think it's going to be an ever-increasing area within the industry, within all industries, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, look, finally, we just wanted to um, make sure that, you know, our listeners could get in touch with you. If they if they needed your services and yeah how how can we do how can having we do a that? crisis <laughs> 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 any crisis calling you straight away 
Um, look, you can find me at, you know, on LinkedIn, uh, Sarah Allchurch on LinkedIn or at the website or info at allchurchcommunications.com. Brilliant. Flo, did you want to add anything to the end there? No, just so grateful for your input today, Sarah. And um, it's, yeah, it's wonderful to have our first guest um, on and, and um, oh, you know, get some insight beyond just what Kim and I have to offer. And um, as wonderful as it is, Kim. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, girls. No, pleasure. Yeah, no, really, really good fun. So, um, yeah, Kim, will uh, I think we've, Got a, another guest lined up for next week, so we'll uh, we'll chat again then with uh, yeah. another uh, member of the extended team. Well, look, I, and Sarah, I'd just like to say that if I was in crisis, if I had to go to someone with the last name All Church, <laughs> I would actually feel really like I was in the right hands. Yeah. <laughs> it's like All Church, I mean, every church, all of them. I can, all, it's every single it's one. All of them. done. Yeah. <laughs> It's, all understanding. It's, it's all multi-denominational. Multi I've actually over the years, once or twice, had people ring up and say, "Hello, I'm from this, from a church." You know, mm. I thought that it's something to do with religious, you know, oh, all church, all church communication, like something to do with yes. What, you know. Yeah, one of my um, mates, his surname <laughs> is Parish. Yeah, and oh, wow. he's an accountant. So parish accounting services. Oh yes, so so he's, deal, he's, like he's got a lock on all the all the bookkeeping for that's all the churches. Oh, that's liberty. <laughs> yes, and there's good money in that. for you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good work. All right. Okay. Thanks, ladies. Thank Bye. You. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Career After COVID podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and check out more tips and ideas at careeraftercovid.com.